Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one: giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org/donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org/donate. Thank you for your support and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. To understand any of them, you have to understand them all. I'm Greg Dalton. With gas prices rising and a decision looming on the Keystone XL pipeline, energy is inching its way back onto the national agenda. President Obama has pledged to use his executive powers to reduce carbon pollution from coal plants, and wants to fund clean technologies with royalties from offshore drilling. Republicans say his coal plan will hurt the economy, and his funding of green startups is a waste of taxpayer money. Over the next hour, we'll discuss the politics of energy with our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. And we're pleased to have with us two seasoned veterans from each side of the political divide. Chris Lehane is a partner and political strategist with Fabiani and Lehane and a former advisor in the Clinton White House. He also advises Democratic billionaire Tom Steyer on his energy strategy. Steve Schmidt is vice chair of Edelman Public Relations and was a senior campaign strategist for Senator John McCain's 2008 presidential bid. He also advised Vice President Dick Cheney and California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. Please welcome them to Climate One. So uh, welcome both. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Uh, let's talk about, let's start at common ground. What are the areas around energy where Republicans and Democrats actually agree, if anything, these days? Chris Lehane? Jeez, you start off right with the, with the curveball, don't you? Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> well, first of all, thank you for having us um, I just want to say at the beginning, Steve and I uh, have done a variety of these types of uh, forums and programs, and we're both very good friends, and I have enormous respect for him. So it's a real honor to be up here, and I want to thank you guys for the tremendous work you do with this with this forum. Uh, you know, the, the, the class of speakers that you've had and the folks you've had involved with this have just been fantastic. So, so thank you for including us. Um, you know, it's, it's a really interesting question, and I guess the way that I look at it is that um, and obviously I'm coming from a very certain perspective um, on, on the left side here of, uh, of the panel. Um, but extreme weather, climate change are beginning to have a significant economic impact. Uh, you know, over the last couple of years, right, we've seen what have happened with crops in the Midwest. We had uh, the Mississippi River where you couldn't have goods going down the river. Uh, you had Superstorm Sandy and the financial implications of that. Uh, if you think about it, you know, this, around the same time that we had the fiscal cliff and the, um, and you basically had a deal that both sides agreed to, uh, within days of that, you had an emergency authorization to deal with Superstorm Sandy of over $60 billion. It was almost the exact same amount down to the dollar that was theoretically saved, you know, by averting the fiscal cliff. Uh, and so I do think what you're beginning to see happening is that folks who are being impacted by this in very direct economic ways, constituencies that traditionally have not been on the left or part of the Democratic conversation, you know, are beginning to take notice. There was a great story a couple weeks ago in the National Journal, uh, and the story began by talking about someone who almost came out of central casting to be a Republican from Norfolk, Virginia, small business owner, uh, whose shop had been flooded two or three times because Norfolk is in a very low-line area from the rising waters and, and, and floods that typically had not occurred as often. Uh, and, and he was someone who was coming at this as, as, as a Republican, but who had been impacted in a very direct way by the economic realities. So, so I do think that as whether it's a publicly traded company, whether it's farmers in the Midwest, uh, whether it's the insurance industry, 
Uh, I think a potential common ground are the economic implications of climate change. And, you know, one of the issues that has been in the forefront recently is, you know, what are we supposed to do in places like Florida and up and down the Atlantic coast, whether people can go back to places that they had previously lived, even though they're ultimately going to potentially be bailed out by the government again uh, if there is another type of a, a storm which is likely to happen. Uh, and so that's a potential area where, it's, where both parties can potentially come together just because of the economic issues and the fiscal implications. Steve Schmidt? I think um, one thing that people in both parties agree on is the need for energy. It makes our world that we live in today a very modern, very high-tech world. It doesn't function without energy. And people, whether they're Republicans or Democrats in this country, they have an expectation that they're going to have access to cheap energy. Um, then when you look inside the political parties, uh, you have extreme voices on both the left and on the right uh, catering to their own bases in both parties that make it very difficult like there are, like in so many other areas of, of government dysfunction right now, to have a conversation about this issue. But um, as you look out ahead over the next decades, water, for example, and its scarcity will become an increasingly important domestic issue, uh, an increasingly important global issue. You talk to people on the East Coast about water in a Western context. They look at you. Uh, with a strange look. What do you mean there's not a lot of water out west? Um, but all of these issues and the climate change issues that Chris has talked about, the superstorms that we've seen over the last, over the last couple of years develop, you know, all of this will conspire together, I think, to drive a policy discussion forward in a really acrimonious, very partisan time that we live in. And do you agree that there's actual, those costs are, are uh, they're not future costs. For so long, climate change was something for 2100, for grandchildren and polar bears far mm-hmm. away. Uh, do you agree that those costs are being felt uh, in the present time by people of all political persuasions? I certainly think that when you look at a storm like Sandy, you have enough people out there that are saying that this is causal from, uh, from climate change. Um, whether, you know, uh, you find a scientist who says that because of climate change, this, this event has happened, um, I think is a different thing. But I think that certainly if you have enough people living in coastal areas and you look at the population centers of the country and you look at the population center between Boston down to Florida living within 90 miles of the coast, it's an enormous number. So if those people come to believe that climate change is causing these storms, causing these problems, causing these economic <clears throat> events in the state, they may drive a, a policy, uh, drive a, drive a policy debate forward. Um, I also think one of the interesting things, you know, politically that will, that will begin to shake out in 2016. I mean, if you watch the Republican primary debates in 2012, it was, it was truly, I mean, it was the best reality show on TV any given night. And I think that we will not have as strange a cast of characters collectively in the next, in the next race. And I think that with Chris Christie, who is likely to run for president, uh, really the face of Superstorm Sandy to a, to a large degree, a Northeastern Republican, it will be interesting to see if there's some evolution, uh, no pun intended, on um, this issue. So what, is, what does that look like? What, what is this? You said that if there's agreement that there's something to address, what is the common area where, where they could come together? What's the solution? What's the, uh, the way to tackle climate change? I think that um, the debate that we have today is very much a binary debate between two polar extremes. And I actually think, and it's where I would put myself, I think that there's a, a third space that we don't talk about very much, you have guys like Jim, J, James Inhofe from Oklahoma who just say, you know, this is a total scam. You know, no such thing as climate change. And, you know, I just, you, you can't argue with the science on it. And I think he's, he's obviously, he's out, he's out in left field on that. Um, then the other extreme is, you know, on the other side is that, well, climate change is real. And so here's the scheme. Here's the policy. Um, that we're going to impose by regulation or by law to do whatever, and there's not a lot of discussion about what the total impact to reversing climate change would be. 
Is it possible to reverse climate change with a policy that's unique to California or unique to Washington State? So what's the total cost that we're willing to impose on ourselves, on our economy, on economic growth, for what impact? And we don't have a lot of discussion about that. Because when you, when you regulate, when you ban, when you do all the things that some on, you know, the, 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 you know, some of the people that are talking about, um, without considering those things, um, I just think it's A, it's detached from reality to a degree. And B, we're not going to be able to have a consensus of policy what to do unless you count the economic impact. Chris Lehane, the Democratic solution for this is to put a price on carbon pollution through cap and trade or maybe a carbon tax. And the reality is that energy prices will go up in that case. Well, first of all, I probably fall into the category that Steve described as the other extreme. Um, and, and I'll just jump in. And, and again, with all respect to Steve, I think we're already paying a lot of those economic consequences. I mean, we talked about uh, the impact that climate has had on all sorts of different areas of our economy. Uh, but it's also having a huge impact on our health. Uh, you know, it's having a huge impact around the world just on issues in, involving people's safety. So you know, all those things are already taking place, and they're also taking place in a context of where there is an enormous subsidization already of the fossil fuel industry. So I mean, just to be clear, right, some of this stuff is we already are suffering consequences. Those consequences are being borne by everyone in society, and you have an industry that already is being subsidized at a significant level. Um, so what is, what is the answer from, 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 the, from the Democratic side or the progressive side? Look, I think there are a variety of ways to look at this. First of all, I don't think it is a zero-sum game where um, you know, costs go up if you decide to do this. I mean, the reality <laughs> is if you, if you sort of take into account all the costs that are taking place already, there's a pretty compelling argument that, in fact, costs go down in terms of what everyone's paying and what individuals pay. Uh, secondly, there's no question that there's going to be a clean tech economy. That is already happening. The real question is, are those jobs going to be here, or are they going to be overseas? And I guess my perspective is I'd much rather have those jobs here, particularly if we do the right policies. I was involved in, you referenced it earlier, on Prop 39, which was an effort to close uh, a loophole that existed um, in California and use the funds uh, to support uh, clean tech. And those funds are specifically going to be used to do retrofits of schools all across the state, I mean, that will create in and of itself, and if I'm remembering this correctly, uh, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 50,000 jobs, uh, you know, long-term jobs to, to retrofit schools all across the state. Now, those are jobs that are going to be here. That is a policy that we're putting in place that's not going to have an economic impact other than the following. It puts a lot of people to work. It's going to save enormous amount of energy bills for public schools that then get plowed into classrooms and back to the students and at the end of the day, the larger societal uh, implications are pretty significant in terms of what it's doing to the quality of the air. Steve, let's have uh, your comment on the subsidization of fossil fuels. And there are costs that are being paid, borne by society and consumers today. <clears throat> well, when you had mentioned I worked for Dick Cheney at the beginning of the program, I remember once before I say what I'm about to say here, <laughs> I remember once being in the limo with Dick Cheney coming through San Francisco, I looked out and I said, sir, look, everyone's waving at you. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I think when you look at, when you look at, if we're, if we're going to term the oil companies, energy companies, um, the fossil fuel economy, fossil fuel economy, the energy companies have lifted more people out of poverty into the middle class creating economic growth worldwide more than any other industry in the history of the world ever. Our entire world is driven by the energy produced by these companies. And I think so many of these companies are vilified and vilified by politicians. Big energy companies, Chevron in California. Is California better off with having Chevron located in it? I think the answer is absolutely, of course it is. Um, these are companies that operate in places as remote as the moon, uh, high-technology companies employing hundreds of thousands of people, scientists, engineers, um, and they are able to extract the resources used to power our world overwhelmingly, uh, safely, um, without incident. Of course, there are accidents and there are incidents, um, but the notion that in the short term, uh, we're going to be able to eliminate our dependence on oil, on, on natural gas, 
and other fossil fuels, I think is fantastical. I think that we should have an all of the above approach, but when it comes to I've heard that approving, for sure somewhere. <laughs> when it comes to when it comes to um, when it comes to approving things like the Keystone Pipeline, uh, it makes no sense to me that we would allow a pipeline to be built to send fuel uh, energy to Asia, but not allow it to come south to the United States. And clearly, in my view, um, getting energy from Canada is better than the alternative of importing energy, for example, from the Middle East, um, where there are significant consequences from from doing that. So um, I do believe that government has a role in research uh, and funding research and, and driving advancement. But should the government be in the business of picking winners or losers, being in the venture capital business, per se? I- I'm skeptical that over the long run, that that's the right way to drive growth in this industry. Chris Lane? Yeah, a, a couple of things. You know, first of all, and again, good friends here, so we're going to, I think, mm-hmm. first of all, I'm playing to a home crowd here, which I think gives me a little bit of an advantage, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> and, and Steve gets great coverage points for showing up at this particular forum. Um, but first of all, right, if you talk about in, industrial policy, which is, I think, what you're sort of indicating, winners and losers, that's, that's happening right now with the fossil fuels. I mean, you are picking winners and losers. Uh, through the level of subsidizations that take place. Second of all, we have something called Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley was created in no small part because of DARPA, a military-funded program that was effectively picking winners and losers. The aerospace industry in California was, divide, was basically funded by the federal government, which picked winners and losers in that context. So we have a government that over time has a record of picking winners and losers. And then when you get the keystone, the keystone argument to me makes a lot more sense if, if what you said is accurate. I think the challenge is it's not necessarily the case. I mean, what we've now learned are two things. First of all, the Keys to TransCanada, the company that owns Keystone, in fact, is not going to have the oil shipped through a pipeline and then delivered to U.S. auto drivers. What they're going to do is ship it through the pipeline to refineries in the Gulf Coast and then ship it to Asia and in particular to China so they can have cheap energy to make cheap goods that they dump back into the U.S. and we lose jobs at the end of the day. Uh, I mean, TransCanada themselves have acknowledged that they cannot commit to this gas going to the United States. They've been pushed on that any number of times, and they refuse to agree that they'll put the, the oil here. The reality is, is that it actually costs them more if they put it on trains and shipped it to the western side of Canada, refined it there, and then sends it on ships. What they want to do is send it on the pipeline so they can actually have a cheap source and increase their profits. Secondly, the amount of jobs that are created, look, at jobs are incredibly important. We all agree that. There will be jobs, some jobs created in terms of the actual construction of the pipeline, but TransCanada's own folks have acknowledged that it's only going to create 35 permanent jobs. So you're talking 35 permanent jobs to send oil to China to make cheap goods to hire more people in China, and we end up losing jobs here. I just don't think that makes a lot of sense. Well, Steve Schmidt. Uh, well, look, all of the all of the oil that would come out of the Canadian tar sands, mm-hmm. you know, whether it ultimately winds up in Asian markets, whether it winds up in a domestic U.S. market, do we want to have? And it would be thousands of jobs building the pipeline. Um, and I'm aware of the statistic on the, you know, the 35, you know, the, with the permanent jobs. But the amount of economic activity that will come from the construction of the pipeline. And our market, of course, when we import oil, where it goes into an American refinery, you know, where it winds up. I mean, part of the rhetoric around, you know, that we're going to be energy independent, right? That all of the oil that comes into the country or all of the oil that we uh, that we mine in U.S. territorial, that, that we exploit in U.S. territorial waters, you know, some of that is imported, excuse me, some of that is exported, you know, some of it stays, you know, domestically. But I think when you look at all of these issues, um, we want to have safe drilling um, off the coast. Um, I don't want to do it off of Santa Barbara. I don't want to do it off of off Monterey. But we need to be able to, I think, extract resources, um, whether they be natural gas Fracking is going to be a huge issue of debate that takes place over the next decade, and I think it's very important. Um, and you look at some of the economic activity that's going to come, you know, from fracking in some places that are that are that are very, um, you know, that are in very tough economic times in Upper New York State, where you've had a job mm-hmm. deficit you know, for a very long time. You look at the economic boom in in North Dakota, for example. So there's huge economic impacts around our ability to exploit our natural resources, and there always has been. And so my point is 
is that we should have we should have balance. And the quest, the point that you're making on on um, you know the government picking winners and losers, you know, through the tax code, which they which they certainly do, and you know, agree completely, completely that we should have fundamental tax reform in the country, and the government should largely get out of the business through the tax code of subsidizing some companies, penalizing other companies. We have the most uncompetitive tax code of any major economy in the world by a lot. And so, you know, I'm someone who, when you look at subsidies to various industries, various industry sectors, including the energy sector, including the agriculture sector, including the sugar industry, for example, we should take a look at, we should take a look at all of this. But when you look at government research, whether it was, you know, ultimately in a DARPA that fueled the internet, whether it was through the space program, which had enormous applications into the domestic computing market, you know, and of course, so much of our technology today came through defense spending, mm-hmm. you know, and innovations there. So I think government spending does drive innovation. Um, but I think that, you know, the government giving direct cash grants to different companies, you know, in the form of, a, of, of almost venture capital, again, I'm just, I'm just skeptical that that's the most effective way for, for government to spend <clears throat> taxpayer dollars on this stuff. If you're just joining us today at the Commonwealth Club, our guests are Chris Lehane, the Democratic strategist, and Steve Schmidt, the Republican political strategist. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, let's talk about President Obama's record so far and what we might expect to see, what you'd like to see in a second term. Steve Schmidt, how has he done so far on energy and the, uh, the environment so far, and what would you like to see in a second term? Well, he's, he's done a much better job than Republicans give him credit for in this space. Um, He's had a more balanced approach than you would see, for example, on if you were watching if you were watching Fox News, you know, all day. Um, and you know he has open areas to to drilling. Um, you know he is uh, he's not as expansive as I would like him to be. Supported this, nuclear power and nu- supported nu- nuclear power. Supported, you know, for example, um, uh, you know, some resource drilling in the in the Arctic. Um, has, um, you know, and has obviously taken a very, very tough line on coal, um, you know, so far. And I think that you're going to see, um, you know, and I think that it's that pretty, a good thing? pretty clear. Well, you know, look, I think when you, when you look at coal, there's an issue, for example, in the Pacific Northwest where talking about building export terminals to ship low sulfur coal from the Powder River Basin to China and the alternative coal that the Chinese would burn absent the lowest sulfur burning coal in the world would be Australian coal or Indonesian coal, which is a, which is a dirtier coal. Um, we have a lot of jobs in this country on coal. Um, how we sequester the, uh, the, the greenhouse gases out of coal fired plants, how we burn that cleaner. I think that's something that government should spend money on. Um, because a lot of our electricity in this country comes from coal-fired, coal-fired plants. And the notion that we're going to be in the next five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years free from coal, I don't think is reality-based. And so um, I think that politically the administration has made the decision that they're going to try to do this through a regulatory process, not through a legislative process. I think there's going to be enormous regulatory fights um, even at a higher and sharper and more serious degree um, from the from the EPA and some of the environmental regulatory agencies um, against this industry because they can't do it legislatively. Chris Lehane, how has Obama, President Obama, done so far, and what do you expect in a sec- second term? You know, I was whenever I'm asked this question, I'm always reminded of you know the three presidential debates uh, and when the issue of energy or climate, and I think this reflects just broadly on our political process and how it works, but when the issue of energy came up, you know, in all three debates, really both candidates, both the Republican and Democrat, you know, effectively tried to, what I would say, out-oil one another, um, which to me was a pretty telling moment in American politics, and I think it's, look, it's somewhat dependent on your premise about where we are, right? If you believe that we can do things in an incremental way, uh, and that there are still questions about whether we can reverse the warming of the planet, um, then I think you look at some of the stuff that, that the president has done, and it's exactly as, as Steve described, which is it's a very balanced approach, uh, which is, as he, the president himself has described it, as the all-of-the-above approach. 
Um, if, on the other hand, your premise is that, you know, that the, the evidence on and most of the science would suggest is that the Earth is warming at a pace that's not sustainable, that uh, GDP could potentially be impacted right now 0.8 percent by, by extreme uh, weather, could potentially be impacted by three percentage points by the year 2030. Uh, if the temperature gets, you know, increases over two degrees Celsius, uh, catastrophic things happen. If you believe that that is the case, if you believe that there, we're already programmed to have an enormous amount of carbons that will be burned, you know, over the next 30, 40 years, um, then I think your perspective on it is that he has not done enough to reflect the urgency of the time and the issue. And my perspective is that if I have a, and, and, and I'm borrowing this from, a, from a, an author who I heard use this argument, that, you know, if your kid has a fever and you are told that that fever is going to increase above 100 degrees unless you do something quickly, I mean, I know as a parent, I'm going to take every action I can to make sure my kid's fever doesn't get over that certain number. Uh, and so I think for those of us who do believe that we are warming at a rate that's not tenable and that we need to do things now to begin changing that in pretty significant things, um, you know, I use the child analogy and think that we need to take more drastic actions. Now, I think that some of this stuff is really going to play itself out over the next three or four months because you have two big issues. One that we've touched on, which is Keystone. Um, and then the second is going to be what happens with the EPA regulations uh, on emission standards. Uh, and there's the potential for the president to move forward through a regulatory process to put such uh, emission standards that will have an enormous impact on the burning of dirty, particularly dirty coal. Steve Schmidt, how urgent is climate change? Um, I think that climate change is real. I think that there is a great deal of anecdotal evidence to suggest that a lot of the weather patterns that we're seeing are, are climate change induced. Um, but um, the policy debate, you know, having a good intention and then following through with a big speech and announcing a very complicated, pol- po- complicated policy regime that will be written by thousands of lawyers in Washington, D.C., I'm skeptical that there's yet any policy solutions that are going to reverse any of this that are on the table, that are feasible and that are doable. And I think that's where the debate is going to play out over the over the near term. We'll talk about California AB 32 tonight. But a prerequisite to having a effective policy, you know, that can deal with some of this stuff, because we all talk about the fact that at the end of the day, anything that you do, with regard to policy and climate change is going to raise energy prices. You can't do that in the type of economy we have today. You can't do that in a low-growth, high-unemployment economy. So before any policies, you know, can be, can be put forward, that can be advanced, that have any impact um, in this country, we're going to have to be in a high-growth economy again. We're going to have to be in an economic – we're going to have to be in an economic recovery. And I also think that scientifically, um, the science rejection by too many people in my party, um, you know, was followed, for example, you know, by misguided policies, you know, in the other party. I'll give you a great you know, example. Um, uh, it's an issue my firm is actually involved in. But this whole fight over plastic bags, you know, in municipalities all over the country, you know, wanting to ban plastic bags. When you ban a plastic bag you increase global warming output because it takes 3.5 trucks to carry the paper bag replacements that would go in one plastic bag truck. Um, the amount of water to you make a paper bag versus a plastic bag is 4x. So judging by carbon output, what is and what is not better for the environment? And you look at the totality of, of all of these issues on the economy. You look, for example... Um, Chris talked about mileage standards. We have the proposed uh, American-European free trade agreement. One of the things before you could have a free trade agreement with the Europeans is we would have to reconcile mileage standards on automobiles um, because the European standard is so much higher than the, than the American standard to get to the end of the free t- trade agreement. So I, I, think, it's, I think it's real. Uh, I'm alarmed uh, by it. Um, but the notion that an individual state or a municipality can take action that's going to reverse, you know, the rising of the tides, I'm skeptical about. It's going to have to be a global solution to a global problem, 
and it's going to be very difficult to convince the developing world that's very quickly moving its people out of poverty um, to look at countries like ours that have been industrialized, you know, for 150, you know, 175 years and say that, oh, now as we're rising, we're going to be dictated to by European, by U.S. powers about our inability to grow the economy. So I think it's a tough issue. Chris Lahane, let's pick up on the point that no one entity, whether it's California or the United States, can tackle this alone. Mm-hmm. It's so big that any one state or country, it's hard to get their arms around it, and particularly California, that what they're doing may be misguided. Yeah, and first of all, I think Steve's point is 100% correct, which is at the end of the day, this has to be a global solution. Right? Everyone has to be involved. That said, China and the U.S., I believe, if I have my math right, account for somewhere around 40%. Uh, you know, of the emissions that take place. Uh, and historically, particularly given the stature and profile of this country globally, you know, it has been the U.S. that has led on global issues. Uh, and so I do think it is somewhat, if we do believe that this is a problem, and a problem that is particularly acute, then ultimately it does require uh, U.S. global leadership. And that's why I think some of these things that we're talking about are so important. Obviously, I think people are pretty well aware of what happened at Copenhagen, um, you know, and the lack of any really consensus or resolution and, you know, questions about whether the U.S. was really playing an effective leadership role uh, at that conference. Um, but in terms of, you know, what can a place like California t- can do, first of all, I think California has historically served as a platform for national change all across this country on a variety of issues. Um, so by, fact, by the fact that California has done it and there has not, the economy hasn't stopped, uh, in fact, a lot of good things have happened with the economy as a result of it. Uh, serves, I do think, as a marker or as an example. Uh, and even within California, you've had some cities, particularly Los Angeles, uh, which has done some pretty remarkable stuff. I think Los Angeles will be coal-free by 2030, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, and that's now serving as a model for a bunch of other cities across the country that are taking a look at what Los Angeles has done uh, and looking for ways that they can emulate that, which obviously has a national impact. And then, you know, look, in terms of what countries can and cannot do, I mean, I'm always struck by what um, a country like Brazil did, which is in a pretty short order uh, converted its automobile industry, um, you know, from the traditional gas to an ethanol-based uh, uh, gas economy. Um, now, there's all sorts of issues that, that co- go with that as well, but they were able to do that in a very short time period. Um, and again, if you believe that this issue is really acute, and, and again, I keep coming back to, to my basic perspective on this, which is I do think we're already paying significant economic costs. I think the economic costs are only going to increase. Those economic costs could be potentially enormously debilitating. If you have a 3% three-point drag on GDP um, over the next 10 or 15 years because of the impact uh, that extreme weather is having and climate change is having, I mean, that is enormous consequences on job production, on economic growth. Uh, so I do think just from a, even if you may not believe that, uh, that there are inherent problems with climate change, it is having an impact on GDP, and you have to get your hands around that and address it just purely from an economic perspective. Chris Lehane is a Democratic strategist and former advisor to President Clinton. Other guests today at the Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is Steve Schmidt, Republican strategist. Uh, let's talk about uh, – you talk, Chris Lehane talked a little bit about uh, social change starting in California. We've seen something quite remarkable on gay marriage recently. Uh, Senator Rob Portman from Ohio came out and said he has a gay son. A lot of – there seems to be some really profound shifting, things that we didn't think we would see a few years ago are happening around marriage equality. Could Steve Schmidt, could something like that happen around climate where the party shifts gradually, where it becomes clear that which way the winds are blowing and then the politicians get on board? I think it's a different issue than than uh, than gay marriage. Uh, but in this one regard, it's the same, um, that the energy in this issue is in a demographic that's under 40 years of age. This is all of the Republican climate deniers that you see, you know, what they share in common largely is they're 80, 70, 60 years old. And you talk to Republicans in their in their 40s, for example, and younger, you know, they don't deny um, that climate change is real. And so, um, and maybe I was inarticulate, at the beginning talking about this, but when the debate takes place between is climate change real or it's not, um, I don't think the American people are, are particularly 
being done a service by that debate, because I think the scientific evidence is totally clear that, in fact, climate change is real. You know, there's the, the much different debate that should be taking place is how do we uh, deal with climate change? What are the policies that will work? What are the costs of those policies? And how do we strike a balance? How do we have a how do we have a global solution? But but there's no doubt that over the next decade, you know, the amount of Republicans who are so adamantly denying the science of climate change. Uh, will diminish by attrition. Um, <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about some uh, at the state level. It's a, it seems to be very different uh, in right? count. In uh, <laughs> it's the cycle of life. <laughs> so history, yeah. But the, the scientists would say that we don't have that much time. That it's urgent. Uh, that the things need to be done sooner. In fact, many Republican governors, uh, Governor Brownback in Kansas has supported wind energy. Governor Christie has supported solar in New Jersey. Uh, Governor Perry in Texas has supported wind energy. Governor Jindal in Louisiana has supported solar energy. So why is it so different at the federal level where there's this kind of this distorted debate where at the state level there's rep- uh, governors who are seeing jobs and opportunity in their state and they're on board, at least in some instances. Look, I, I, don't, I don't know of any Republican office holder at the federal level who would say, I'm against wind energy or I'm against solar energy or I'm against this type of alternative energy. I think that most Well, a lot of them held up the, in, the production tax credit for in, wind energy, which was a big deal for the wind industry. Right. So the issue then becomes, as you look at a balance sheet, uh, and I think it's a legitimate debate over, is what are we spending on this and the what's cost. the return that we're, that we're going to get on it? And you know, one of the things I, I mean, that I think is totally absent from the from the political debate in the country, and I say this with a lot of self-criticism as a Republican. You know, Republicans who rage against government spending and rage against the the deficits and the size of the debt in the country. I mean, we're as every bit as guilty as the Democrats um, in driving up uh, the debt in this country, but. We're responsible for it. Democrats are responsible for it. The entire generation of political leaders are responsible for bringing this country closer to the edge of insolvency. And um, whether it's in five years or ten years, we're not on a sustainable fiscal path. And the debate about what this stuff costs and what is the value derived of it from government spending is a, is a debate we better start having in this country um, because the debt crisis that will ultimately come, the bond crisis that will ultimately come, uh, the crisis that will come when the U.S. dollar is dropped as the reserve currency in the world. You know, this day is not is not that far off into the into the future and it impacts all of this. Um, and, you know, I think one of the one of the things that's important. You know, I think for folks to remember is when you talk about protecting the environment and being a good steward of the environment, it's very tough to protect the environment and be a steward of the environment without money. And you don't have money if you don't have economic growth and a growing economy. All of the states that are in tough economic times, all of them wind up cutting the amount of money that they're spending on environmental protection and enforcement. We need a growing economy in order to be able to protect the environment. Chris Lehane, we're talking about some really tough choices here, and uh, I've been talking with urban officials recently who are talking a lot about uh, pro- spending to protect the infrastructure that we have. Take the uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, just protecting the roads we have from sea level rise, from extreme weather events. We're going to have to spend a lot of money to keep what we've got, yeah. and that may mean that Democrats may need to give a little bit on some near and dear issues like entitlements or something else. And they've made some real tough choices. Sure. A couple of points. First of all, when you asked the gay marriage uh, question, it, mm-hmm. it did remind me that you know, Steve is actually one of the heroes, uh, particularly on the Republican side, in the movement for having stood up on this very early uh, and spoke out on this. Um, so it's true. You, you did a video a, on that. There's a lot of bonus points for that. Um, <laughs> and very courageous for doing that. Um, okay, I, I, so much of this keeps coming back to, you know, what – your perspective is on this, right? As you were indicating, right? all of these are costs that we're bearing at some level because of what's happening with climate. Um, and there's no question that we need to take a big step back and get our fiscal house in order long term. Uh, but that's not a either or. 
at some level, some of the enormous problems that we are having that are putting huge financial pressures on us are coming from some of the issues being generated by extreme weather and climate. You're talking about, I think, a billion dollars a pop every time you get one of these storms that people typically, that we have typically not seen. Um, you're looking at the impact that it's having on public companies. You have a company like Coca-Cola, which has to close down, you know, its water source in India because it loses its water. That has an impact. Uh, we talked earlier about the impact on crops in the Midwest when there was a historic drought that drove everyone's food prices up. That has an impact on uh, the fiscal state of the country. So these things are already the health of, of our people. All those things are coming. I do think we need to take a big step back, and certainly, and Steve touched on this, you know, look at our tax structure. I mean, look, here in California, we have a discussion going on right now about whether we are going to allow the extraction of natural gas along a big chunk of the state. We're having that discussion, but we're not at the same time having a discussion about whether once and for all we'll become the 50th state in the country to have an oil severance tax. We do not have an oil severance tax. 49 other states in the country do. Texas does. Texas uses the money to fund uh, an education system. We Some of those states here. don't have income taxes, which com- may compensate. So, so my view would be, and again, if I could wave a magic wand, right, we should pass an oil severance tax and use a piece of it to lower the income tax burden here in California. If you're just joining us, our guest today at Climate One of the Commonwealth Club are Chris Lehane and Steve Schmidt, uh, the political consultants. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, we're going to invite your participation and, and put a microphone up here and encourage you to join us for one one-part question. If you need help keeping that brief, I'm here for you. Um, <laughs> and uh, if you're on this side of the house, please uh, go out through that door over there rather than crossing these camera lines. Um, the line uh, begins with our wonderful producer, Jane Ann, over there. Um, and while we get that organized, I'm going to ask um, one other question, which is, um, Steve Schmidt, in 2005, John McCain was a leader on climate change, pushed some legislation in the Senate, uh, was, was out early on, on this, and he and a lot of other Republicans have uh, walked backwards at a time when the science has become more urgent and clear. They have been uh, taking a different position. In fact, one Republican, Bob Inglis, was voted out of Congress partly because he said, I believe in the science, we've got to do something about it. So explain the politics and the science going in different directions. Um, well, let's be clear, too, like on, sign, uh, on climate change legislation, is there was a great absence of Democratic votes, you know, for it as well mm-hmm. in, in Cold state you know, Democrats that, yep. in that in that period of time. So mm-hmm. once it became clear that no legislation was going to pass um, and that there was potentially a political price to pay in a Republican primary, all the Republican you know, congressmen and, and senators took a pass on the issue and have been missing an action on it, you know, ever, ever since. But, you know, there's not, um, you know, but the reason uh, that we can't move climate change legislation of any type forward is a function of, of both parties, not just Republicans. And is, does it have anything to do with the campaign funding where the money's coming from? No, I don't think so. I think it has to do with, I think it has to do with, well, no, I mean, people can laugh, but I, I'm not sure they understand how campaigns are funded. Um, the, um, the, uh, I think the reality is, is that the job implications um, in a lot of the states uh, make it very difficult for people to, to, to get on board, Illinois being a great example. Chris Lehane, is campaign funding, fossil fuel funding in Congress an issue in the votes? Look, I mean, there's no question that, you know, the ability to spend money uh, and be a significant contributor is going to have an impact on the political process, whether it's direct contributions to candidates uh, and potentially creating greater, greater access to their, those candidates, whether it's outside spending. Um, I mean, it's the reality of politics, which is that, you know, those who have money and can leverage that money are going to be able to have an impact. Um, uh, uh, you know, you look at, again, not the fossil fuel industry, particularly the petrochemical industry, you know, has spent not only an enormous amount of money in, in impacting the political process, they've also spent an enormous amount of money impacting the broader environment. I mean, they spend a lot of money on television commercials. They spend a lot of money, you know, uh, uh, funding foundations that put out various reports and information. So the money gets out there in all sorts of different ways. But I do think that, that, that Steve's basic point that was still right, which is that this is not just uniquely a Republican problem or it's not, nor a Democrat. I mean, both parties uh, have not necessarily, you know, shown the profile and courage, you know, on this particular issue. And at some level, sometimes the issue breaks down less along purely partisan lines 
and more along uh, geography lines, like where are you from, which state do you represent, how do those issues impact, and you go back and, you know, I think to the, right, one of the president's experiences was when he was taking a look uh, at various environmental issues in the first term, there, he didn't necessarily get the support that he was looking for from certain people in certain states that made it very difficult for him to move forward. Let's have our first audience question for Steve Schmidt and Chris Lehane. Welcome. Thanks. Um, it's not a climate question, so I hope this is okay, but it does relate to gay marriage. Steve, since you truly are one of the best Republican strategists out there and was very involved in vetting of, on the McCain-Palin ticket, um, do you think that Rob Portman, having a gay son, entered into Romney's decision not to pick Rob Portman? No, um, I don't. Uh, Rob Portman's a terrific guy. Uh, I know him really well. Um, you know, to, you know, he is a, someone who is going to wind up again on the short list for vice president. And I can, I can, I can count just, yeah, I won't name names. I could name 10 U.S. senators and at least 25 members of Congress who support gay marriage privately. They just don't want to challenge and confront the base. But what Rob Portman represents is like a cracking of of the glass, so to speak, because there is not going to be a political consequence for Rob Portman. He's not going to lose a Republican primary over the over the issue of gay marriage. And one of the great things that's going to happen, I think, as a result of Rob Portman coming out in this position is you'll have groups like the National Organization of Marriage will huff and puff and stomp their feet. But, you know, those people couldn't organize a three-car motorcade. And, <laughs> and, and, and the reality is going to be uh, that people are going to see that they can take a stand on this issue as a matter of conscience and conviction, get on the right side of history, and be consistent with the historical foundations of our party um, as one of freedom and equality. And, uh, and I think you'll see more and more people over the next year or two um, begin to do that. Will there be a consequence of being on the wrong side of climate history? I think it's too early to tell. Um, if, um, you know, someone's going to be proved right and someone's going to be proved wrong. But um, I also think, and again, I keep coming back to this, back to this point in the debate, you know, Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation have revolutionized philanthropy by putting metrics around how you spend money. Um, Bill Clinton, you know, has, has transformed uh, the way that charitable money is spent through the Clinton Global Initiative by putting metrics around it. An important part of the climate change debate and the policies that get enacted or don't get enacted, a lot of it is going to have to do with how proponents talk about metrics and how they define metrics. Because I think most people will come to agree that the problem is real. And I think that most people will come to agree that the people who are working to solve the problem have good intentions. But what is the actual <coughs> consequence and metrics you can judge uh, the effects of the policies by? And, um, and I think there's a ways to go on that. Let's have our next question. Welcome. A lot of the um, solutions that we've seen uh, floated for addressing climate change in the U.S. have come from, from Democrats of late. Many of those ideas were Republican ideas. So assuming climate change is as bad as uh, people who work on it on a daily basis are telling us it is, what is a Republican response to it? I, really at a loss for what that is. We haven't heard much about it. What's a Republican policy response? If cap-and-trade is political poison, what is a Republican policy there response? There is none. I mean, there, there doesn't exist. I mean, I'm not sure, I'm not sure that I think that there's a unified Democratic response. Um, but I think Chris could make an argument that there is. I mean, there's definitely not a Republican one. There's just, there's just a, not. A carbon tax is one thing that uh, former Secretary of State George Schultz right. and others are out there saying a carbon tax. Yeah. Is I mean, I, I admire, I, you know, one of the great privileges of my career is getting to know George Schultz pretty well during the Arnold Schwarzenegger campaign. I admire him immensely, but, you know, certainly that is a view that is not reflective of either the, you know, Senate conference, the House of Representatives conference, or the, you know, real base of the Republican 
you know, Republican Party on. Or anyone in elected office. Or anyone in, or anyone in elected <clears throat> office. Chris Lehane? You know, I joked the other day, right, that the Republican leadership on this sort of began and ended with Teddy Roosevelt. Um, that's not necessarily the case. I mean, you do have the first President Bush who did take leadership and pass you know, the Clean Air Act, uh, which, by the way, was based on regulations, and, and they did have metrics, and, and, uh, and it ended up being a very effective uh, piece of legislation. But, but even Steve's former boss um, you know, here in California, which is Governor Schwarzenegger, uh, teamed up with Democrats in the state Senate and the state assembly uh, to pass AB 32, um, which, you know, is effectively a cap and trade system that now exists in California. It was the governor's, I, I think you'd certainly say hallmark legislative accomplishment or one of them, but certainly up there. Uh, I think, and I certainly can't speak for him, but he obviously became someone who became a bigger and bigger proponent and more and more involved on this issue in his time in office. Uh, and I think deserves enormous credit as a Republican. Uh, for really lean on that. And to me, it's a, you asked the very beginning, you know, can folks come together? Um, you know, that is an example of a Republican governor, a Democratic legislature, obviously in a Democratic state, coming together and actually passing something and doing something that was really big and pretty substantive. I do, Steve I do Finn. think, I do think on one of the points that, you know, as they said, only Nixon could go to China. I do think it will take a Republican president, um, to advance this issue forward. Um, and bring the party, bring the party along. I think that, um, and we will have a Republican president again at some point. Um, <laughs> it's inevitable in a two-party system. Um, but I, but I do think it would be a Republican president that was able to bring his party along and then do a deal with Democrats as opposed to, you know, the unified opposition you have now in, in a Republican. I Congress. want to go to the audience question, but first, Chris Lahane, is that true that, that, that Republicans will, are more likely to deliver the goods on climate than a Democrat who will face an incumbent uh, opposition? I think it's somewhat dependent on how you think, you know, our political sort of composition is going to evolve really over the next five or ten years. Um, you know, one of the things that you take a look at is how voters under 30, Steve talked about the attrition at the other end, you know, you do have more voters under 30 coming into the voter pool, uh, and those folks have a view on this issue you know, that is very robust, very aggressive. Um, obviously, it's going to implicate the lives that they're going to lead, uh, and I, they approach this in a way where this is a top-tier issue. You look at polling on the issue, um, and even, you know, with, with a lot of Republicans, there are people who basically take the view that something's going on out there, uh, but you're not necessarily at a point from just a pure polling perspective, you know, where people have been willing to express uh, a commitment to making some of the hard decisions, which then, you know, Politicians read that. Politicians typically do not lead. They follow. They follow where the public is. So ultimately, to get that social change, you're going to need to begin having the actual electorate change. But I do think that's happening. And, you know, my hope is that it is not going to take a cataclysmic event to get that major change. In some respect, before you had a bunch of big events, Katrina, Sandy, uh, Superstorm Sandy, others. But maybe this follows the, the trajectory of healthcare, which is healthcare began in the late 80s and early 90s, you know, as a democratic push. There was an election in Pennsylvania. President Clinton pushed it in his first year in office, wasn't able to get it done. But then ten, you fast forward, you get to Obama, enough support had moved that you were able to pass it. question on climate is if it's as extreme as people and the scientists are saying, can you wait that long for that type of change to happen? Chris Lehane is a Democratic strategist and former advisor to President Clinton. Our other guest today at the Commonwealth Club is Steve Schmidt, Vice Chair of Edelman Public Relations and strategist for Senator John McCain's presidential campaign. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's have our next audience question. We've got about 10 minutes left. We'll get in as many as we can. My question relates to your um, comments on the differences between states. And uh, also to yours about Rob Portman, my home state, Ohio, and I look at that, and I'm now here, and when I'm out, and this personal anecdote, I think, um, exemplifies what I'm trying to say. When I was out walking my dog this week by the bay on the island where I live, um, in the bay, I saw these huge rolls of material that we're, use, we're going to use to shore up our uh, shoreline because the extreme high tides have washed it away, and we're at sea level in the town of Alameda, maybe below, and there's a lot of very valuable homes there. 
And so um, whatever our homeowners association has decided to do, it's there. They have to do it. Now, how would people back in Ohio relate to that? Thank you. That's a, so it's real for some people. Some people aren't living it yet. Chris Lehane. Well, I think there's a different answer to that, but go, go ahead. First of all, I would say that if you're still living in Ohio, you probably would have had both of the presidential candidates walk your dog for you, given the amount of attention to people. <laughs> um, uh, and you would have been able to ask him this question yourself personally. Um, uh, but I, I do think, you know, Ohio, really, the Midwest is dealing with a similar issue with the Great Lakes, which is you've had, you know, a change in the levels of the Great Lakes. You've had... Uh, you know, issues in terms of uh, uh, the ecology uh, of the Great Lakes, which are having a broader economic impact throughout that, you know, the upper Midwest. Uh, you've obviously also had patches of Ohio that have had, you know, significant issues with air quality. Um, so I think one of the interesting things that, you, that at least I've discovered as I've gone through the political process on this is that sometimes it's much better to have the discussion very localized. Uh, from a political perspective, people in a particular state, if you can relate it to something that they're experiencing or going through, are going to be much more attuned to it than if you're making the broader argument. Um, but I think what is happening, what you're beginning to see, is that in all of these places, uh, climate change and the perils of climate change are beginning to manifest itself. It can be in different ways. Uh, it can be with different causes. But people are, are beginning to feel it in a whole variety of uh, uh, manifestations. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome. Wonderful to be here. I'm a co-founder of Move On, and inspired by the impressive work I've seen done there in the last decade in D.C., I help co-found with a conservative partner Living Room Conversations a couple of years ago. And our first Living Room Conversations were about energy slash climate. And we discovered that really we could talk about energy, but because we don't even share facts on climate at this point, we couldn't really have that conversation. So my question is, if you were able to have, you know, tens of thousands of small conversations, two co-hosts, two guests each around the country to give support to political candidates that are concerned about this, what would be the conversations that they could have? Where are the shared facts? Specifically in the context of climate and energy, right? Climate. Okay. One of the things we're thinking mm-hmm. about is fracking. Can mm-hmm. we find shared facts on fracking? Mm-hmm. That's, you know, we're having pitched battles around the country. And my conservative friends believe a whole different set of facts than my progressive ones. And it just cause your brain to explode mm-hmm. because we don't have the same facts to talk about. And these are nice people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, it, at some level, what you're really getting at is, is a broader, and I'll, I'll answer it specifically, but let me take it globally and then sort of narrow it down. Right? You're, you're sort of touching on a bigger challenge that this country faces. And here's an interesting statistic that I'll undoubtedly have a little bit off, but, but the basic point is right, which is in 1976, uh, when Carter beat Ford, um, about 75% of the country lived in voting districts, precincts, not just precincts, neighborhoods, that reflected the general election vote, and that was roughly a one-point election. Um, what you've seen in 2012, 2008 was a bit of an outlier because the margin 2004 and 2000 is that almost the reverse of that, which is that you now have a very small relative portion of the electorate that lives in precincts, meaning their neighborhoods, that reflected the overall general election vote, you know, that one, one point or less in some cases. Um, with the vast majority of people living in what are called landslide precincts. Uh, and what that tells you is that you now have a society, you know, people have talked about the red and blue America, and sometimes that is overstated to a degree because I continue not to think that the gulf is that that big. But people are sort of self-selecting where they live, who they interact with, the media outlets they listen to. It could be an MSNBC versus a Fox world. And so those are, those are having an enormous impact on the ability to sort of find that common ground. Marshall McClellan had talked about, you know, a global village, and his theory of a global village was that people would be sharing a commonality of information. You sort of have a global village in terms of how information moves and the speed in which it moves, but it's really bifurcated now, and people can specifically select where they get information from, who they trust, who they don't trust. Uh, And you watch, you can watch Steve on MSNBC or watch Fox, and you can get two extremely different views of the same exact issue. Uh, and I think that, you know, you're seeing that also reflecting itself at the very local level. On the specific issue of, 
of climate. Some of the stuff that, that I have seen, and, and obviously some of this is very dependent on the tone that you take, um, and obviously making sure it's a conversation is, you know, coming at it from the perspective, and Steve has touched on this, of, you know, our, not, being, not being science deniers, right? Let's actually take, let's try to have a conversation about whether science has a place and what it can tell us. I also think we saw this, and this was in California, but even with Republican voters in California, when we did um, Prop 23, which, again, was something that Tom Steyer, who's based here in San Francisco, led, which was an effort to overturn California's global uh, the climate change bill that we talked about, uh, we really focused on the fact of whether the jobs are going to be here or in China. Um, people across all the parties sort of got the concept that there were going to be clean tech jobs, and they wanted to know whether those jobs would be here or whether they would be somewhere else, and that served as a common area to have a conversation about. And the last issue that I would just touch on that I do think that there would be some common interest in, and again, something that Steve, had, I think, eloquently addressed earlier, which is, you know, having a discussion about our fiscal house and what our tax structure is going to look like, uh, because at the end of the day, we do have a tax structure that is not doing this country a broader good, uh, and there's a whole bunch of areas that you can look at, and I think amongst the areas that you would need to take a look at is the fact that some of the largest subsidies that we provide are going to arguably the most profitable companies in the world, which are, which are the oil companies. And so there are certain places, you know, particularly with Main Street Republicans, where some of those issues will in particular resonate. Uh, but again, I think it's an incredibly difficult and challenging time in our country's history in terms of, the, uh, of, of just how bifurcated people are in terms of where they're coming from. Steve Schmidt, uh, Chris almost ran off the clock on you there. Yeah, I'm sorry. Gotta, um, uh, let's get you in there with one last no, question. No, I, you know, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the late great Democratic senator from New York, he said that everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but not their own facts. But we don't live in that world anymore. <clears throat> so one of the consequences of media fragmentation is that we now don't share the common experiences that we used to all share. When the sitcom MASH went off the air, 120 million people watch that in this country. Biggest show, American Idol, maybe gets an audience of 25 million on the on the final night. And when it comes to politics, just like we don't sit around the radio waiting for our favorite song to come on, it's plugged into our iPod, so is our news. And people are going to places where their opinions are reinforced, not challenged, and increasingly people live in their own bubble world, which explains how it is that if you were on the Romney campaign or supporting Mitt Romney, honest to God, despite all the plethora of polling information and empirical data that made it clear the president was going to get reelected, they honest to God believed that Mitt Romney was about to win in a win in a landslide. So it's so it's very, very difficult um, to operate when you're trying to have honest dialogues about solutions in a culture where everybody's opinions are reinforced. Uh, by their networks or news sources of choice, and where the people who are rewarded with the microphones are not people looking to build consensus in the middle, you know, but are but are typically, you know, out on the the, the loony sphere somewhere. Let's have one last audience question. Welcome. Okay. Hi. Um, so we have scientific imperatives saying that we absolutely must take action on climate change very soon, and yet we have entrenched politics. What is it going to take, Steve, to move the Republican Party and to move these last kind of Democrats who won't vote to actually take action? Is it going to take, you know, change in campaign finance and a lot of money coming in behind climate? Is it going to take grass tops leaders and industry coming out? Will it take children and grandchildren coming out to their parents who are elected leaders saying, I'm a climate supporter? (laughs) Is it going to take FEMA budget coming onto par with growth in GDP? Will it take grid parity for clean energy? Like, what do you think it's really going to take to get the Republican Party to move? Steve Smith? Um, I'm going to answer this question by talking about guns for a second. Um, We had a terrible tragedy in this country in December that I think for every person in this room and, you know, certainly every person that is a parent and maybe most acutely for people who have kids the same age or approximate age of those of those murdered children. And I think in my lifetime, I can't think of a worse story ever happening. Um, an act of evil beyond almost an ability to comprehend it. And look at the political debate that's ensued from that. Um, I'm a Second Amendment guy. Um, but we ought to have some common sense 
when it comes to issues like background checks. You looked at the Colorado shooter and people talked about, you know, were there evidence of mental illness? I said, yeah. When he was buying thousands of rounds of ammunition <clears throat> to his crappy one-bedroom apartment. Um, and the inability of our federal legislators, at least, to work through a solution on that when it was such an immediate trauma, when the threat is so real. It happens every week, um, some incidents of gun violence. So when you look at this issue, um, and it's in the future, and people are feeling it maybe if they live in New Jersey or they live in a place that's been hit hard by, uh, you know, by, by one of the storms over the last couple of years. You know, but the political debate is essentially, this is the problem. Science says it's real. Here's the sacrifice we demand of you economically, uh, economic growth-wise, without being able to talk convincingly what the result of the policy that demands the sacrifice will be. So I'm not very optimistic in the short term or the medium term that there's going to be a, be a big advance on this. And it's because of, I think, some of the singularities of, of this issue, uh, but also um, the great dysfunction that exists in, in Washington, the stalemate um, between the two parties to deal with things that are patently obvious to any sensible person that they need to be dealt with. So I think it's a very tough issue. I think it's a very tough issue to see to, to see to see uh, to see legislation passed on it anytime soon. How do you think it'll affect you and your family in your lifetime? You live in the beautiful mountains of the Sierra Nevada, on the border between California and Nevada, uh, Lake Tahoe. Um, look, I you know I think I, I think I, and I'm a New Jersey native. Um, I can't tell you how sad I am about you know the Jersey Shore that I grew up going to. It's annihilated. It's gone. It's never gonna gonna be back. It's heartbreaking. So um, you know I think that. If you, if, if I, if I accept, if I stipulate to, you know, Chris's view of this, um, you know, over the course of my life, I'm, I'm 42 in my children's life, there's going to be major economic impacts, environmental harm, uh, there's going to be water crises that play out domestically and internationally, um, and people fight over water. In parts of the world where it's where where they don't have access to it, but um, when you when you're talking about increasingly scarce resources and the instability that it drives, it's it's scary. But you know, we live in a scary time, and we um, we you know have challenges as a country. And I'd just say in conclusion, not to end on a on a pessimistic note, you know what Churchill said about the Americans is that at the end of the day. We'll always do the right thing, although we'll wait to the last possible minute to do it. Um, so we hope that's the, that's the case on this issue and in some others. Churchill also said there's nothing quite as exhilarating as being shot at and missed. Um, and I hope when it comes to climate change <laughs> that, you know, we're in a position that uh, we are able to make some. Look, I'm actually one who um, is somewhat optimistic uh, on this. I and mean, I think the stuff is taking place. And, and, and But I also think that... The, the more information that I'm seeing from the electorate, uh, I think people are beginning to get it. Uh, and I do think you will begin to see more and more people leading, and as a result, the politicians will follow. We have to end it there. Our thanks to Steve Schmidt, Vice Chair of Edelman Public Relations and former Senior Campaign Strategist for Senator John McCain's 2008 presidential campaign, and Chris Lehane, an author and strategist and former advisor to President Clinton. I'm Greg Dalton. This has been a program at Climate One of the Commonwealth Club. A podcast of this and other Climate One programs are available for free in the iTunes store. I'd like to thank our audience here and on the radio. Thank you all for coming.